life bottoms out. You don't know where to turn. You know, do not know what direction to take the next step. You don't even know what questions to ask or to whom to ask the questions. Storms are out there on the horizon and you know they're coming. You see some warning of them. When they make landfall, you feel so unprepared and helpless. And maybe a pertinent question comes to mind and you ask yourself, where is God in all of this? It's a popular song that's being sung these days and the reoccurring phrase in the song is this, there is no refining without the fire and there is no rescue without the flood. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I could use a little less refining and a little less rescuing. Maybe this has no relevance to you. You say, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you haven't lived long enough. Just hang around, and sooner or later, life is going to hand you circumstances, and you're going to ask yourself, where did this come from? And what is my response? What is my appropriate response to this situation? We are studying through the chapters in the book of Exodus. It is an Old Testament book that when you read it, you say, well, that took place so long ago. That that has nothing to say to my life. But if there is one thing that I want you to hear me say and remember it for the rest of your life, it is this. It may not seem profound to you, but somewhere along the way as you read through the scriptures and God illuminates this truth and reveals himself, you will find yourself coming back to this idea over and over and over again. Here it is. The God who was is the God who is. And the circumstances of people long ago are eerily similar to circumstances that you and I even experience in this contemporary world. A couple of Sundays ago, we looked at chapter 1 in Exodus and we saw a little bit of the climate, the backdrop against which Moses was born. This morning... We're going to get around to the birth of Moses, but I want, to, I want to just sort of sneak up on it, if I can, and ask you to think about some things with me along the way. Because what you're going to see is that there is a cycle of events that is repeated over and over and over again in the Bible, and I think we are in the middle of one of those cycles, one of those phases as God continues to deal with mankind on planet earth, and I'm not a prophet by saying this, I think it's evident in scripture this will continue to take place until time comes to an end. 
There have been so many experiences in my own life like I've just described. When the lights are turned out and I can't even find the switch. There is no generator. <laughs> there is no ability to turn the light on in my own strength, and my own power. And so I'm wondering, well, Lord, how in the world do I take the next step and what do I do? There are two reoccurring thoughts that I want, I want you to keep coming back to over and over again. Here they are. Number one, nothing Nothing catches God by surprise. We need to remember that. The second thing we need to remember is that when these events take place that are so traumatic and overwhelming in our lives, God is still in control. I need to let that simmer for just a little while, but I want to show you what I'm talking about and how this plays out in the book of Exodus. If you remember in Exodus chapter 1, it's a very bleak, somber chapter in the Bible as the Bible declares that Pharaoh, who was a king in Egypt, in that day decided that the Israelites were getting too many and they were too strong and because of his own paranoia and insecurity, he devised a plan. And he said, we need to weaken them a bit. And so he, he told the handmaids, this is what I want you to do. If it's a male child that's born, when you deliver it, kill it. If it's a female child, you can let it live. Then the Bible tells us that these handmaidens chose to obey God rather than man. They saw the problem with that. They chose life over death, and they let the male children live. The chapter ends with Pharaoh saying to his ambassadors, his lawmen, his soldiers, go into Goshen, which is where these descendants of Jacob lived, find the male children, and throw them in the river. Throw them in the Nile River. Now, understand something. There were two things operating in the mind of Pharaoh when he wanted to do this. The first one was, I want to weaken the descendants of Jacob. If we take the male children, they won't have soldiers to grow up. They can't wage war against us. That was his plan. But the second reason operating there was this idea that the Nile River was worshipped in Egypt. They had all these false gods and goddesses, and we'll get to that, Lord willing, later. But with the Nile River, it overflowed. And if you, if you look on Google Earth, if any of you have ever used that feature online, you, you can actually go to Egypt and you can see the Nile River and the tributary that it represents. When the Nile River overflows, it is a natural irrigation in the delta region of Egypt. And it produced a very fertile soil where they are allowed to grow crops. And so Pharaoh and the people there worshipped the Nile River. The casting of the children into the Nile was an act of worship in his mind of the Nile River. They saw it as a god, as a deity in their land. Where is God in all of this? I want you to open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 15. And I want you to look at just one verse. Genesis 15. Now in this chapter, we know that God is speaking to Abram and Sarah. 
And he's telling them about all of their descendants and what they're going to be like. And you remember he says they're going to be more than the stars in the sky and more than the grain of sand on the seashore. And it's, it, you, you are, I'm, I'm using you, Abram. I'm using you, Sarah. That's what God was saying to them. But look at what he says in verse 13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Wow. I want you to think about something now. Get your mind wrapped around this. God is speaking to Abram, and he tells him about something that's going to take place at least 500 years from this point. But the 500 years, you tack on another 400 years, God is going to take almost a thousand years before Moses ever ultimately delivers them from the hand of the Egyptians. And God is saying to Abram, there are going to be many. You're going to be blessed with all of these descendants. Right now you think that it's just you and this small clan, this small family, but I'm telling you, your family is going to grow and it's going to multiply, but they're going to be in... God's telling Abram that they're actually going to a place that they are strangers of. They lead the plan that God had for them where God led Abram first. And then he says, they're going to be there for about 400 years before they're ever freed. What I'm talking to you about this morning is the providence of God. Now, that's a big church word, and I want to make sense of it if I can. The word providence comes from two Latin words, pro meaning before and vidence from the Latin word vidir meaning to see. Basically, what the providence of God refers to is God's ability to see events before they happen. We know that God has always existed. He is alive today. God will continue to exist throughout all eternity. There is no end to God. This is a basic tenet of our faith. As you think about the existence of God in this way, we also say that God is omniscient. That means that God, means that God knows everything. And in the foreknowledge of God, it is the idea that he's saying to Abram, I want you to know, I'm not telling you you're going to be blessed now. I'm telling you you're going to continue to be blessed. And as he looks out into the future, he's telling Abram of what's going to take place. God knew from the very beginning, before these people were ever born, that they were going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. But guess what? God also knew how he was going to deliver them. This, folks, is an understanding of how God has operated since the beginning of time. The idea is that when he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he knew they were going to eat of that forbidden fruit. He knew they were going to sin, and yet he put them in there anyway. He knew that mankind would continue to sin every generation after till present day and as long as human beings are alive on this planet, but yet God continues to allow us to live and God knew how he was going to redeem us by sending Jesus. The providence of God, God's ability to see events before they 
happen. But in the providence of God, there is always the plan of God. And this morning, I want to show you how the plan of God plays out in the life of Moses leading up to his birth. And I'm going to, I know we're getting to Exodus 2. Don't think, well, good grief, he missed a Sunday and they're going to preach two sermons, one. No. Just hang with me. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 11 for just a moment. Can you do that? Hebrews 11. Because the New Testament gives us an insight into what's going to take place in Exodus chapter 2. Listen to it this way. Hebrews 11, look at verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Parenthetically, you know how Moses was spared, right? The wicker basket in, in the Nile River. Prior to that, he was hidden by his parents for three months. Can I, can I just ask y'all, how do you hide a three-month-old? You keep them fed, you keep them dry, you try to keep them quiet, right? But babies cry. I don't know if your baby cried or not, but my babies cried, my two girls. Sometime two and three in the morning when Angie was up with them. And uh, if I'd have had a wicker basket, they'd have been in trouble. I, uh. But his parents hid him for three months because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. Look at what it says in verse 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the placing pleasures of sin. Now I want to stop there for just a moment. I want to tell you that I think these parents had courage. They had courage. To not follow what the king said, although, by the way, we could technically say they did what he told them to do. They said, throw the male children in the Nile River. They said, okay, we're going to do that, but we're going to do it our way and in our time, right? By putting the basket in the Nile River. So they had courage. Parents need courage. Parents, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it lovingly as I know how, and I'm saying it because I've seen it pretty much as an educator more than any other time. All right? There are times that you need to draw the line in your mind and remind yourself that your children do not have to like what you tell them. Is that too harsh on a Sunday morning? Some of you are saying, well, what? That, that has nothing to do with Scripture. It has everything to do with Scripture. But I see it so often in the school business where parents are afraid to tell their child something because they know they won't like it. They're, they won't like me when I tell them. You need to have the courage to believe that children need to know where the lines are drawn. They need to know where the fences are. Even though they won't express it, even though they won't admit it, they need it. Have the courage to build the fences. Have the courage to draw the lines and to express and explain to your children where the limits are. Moses' parents had courage. They had courage to avoid what the, the king said to do, but they also had the faith to believe that God was doing something special in their family. Now turn back to Exodus chapter 2, and let's walk through these verses this morning. Look at what it says in Exodus 2. And I'm talking about the plan of God. Look at verse 3. 
But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister, by the way we would learn later, is named Miriam. Miriam stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away, nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. Now there's more here than we have time to cover. And I just want to, I want to point out the plan that God gave to Moses' parents here. The plan, the plan, the plan of God. What do you do when the lights are out? You don't know where the switch is. When circumstances come to you and you say, Lord, I don't even know what directions to go. I don't know what questions to ask. Are you even a part of this? We need a plan. Have you ever needed a plan? Have you ever needed something specific that you knew that you could do to respond effectively to a situation? I'm going to lighten the moment just for you this morning. Can I do that? Some of you look like it's about time you lighten the moment. Three years ago, three years ago, no school at Clinton Junior High. Some of you will have no way to connect with this, but on the first day of school, it's a special day. You know, you basically have three goals on the first day of school. Get them in, get them fed, and get them home. That's three things you want to accomplish on the first day of school. So we'd had our grade level assemblies. Our auditorium would seat about 800, but we couldn't put both grades in there. So we'd have a seventh grade uh, assembly and then an eighth grade assembly. And we tried to be positive and tell them it's going to be a great year, but here's some things you need to know to make it great and things you need to do to follow along and so forth. And so then you you know, go through the process of getting your cafeteria folks acclimated and learn to feed those folks. It takes a while to get in a routine, you know. So we finished feeding that day about 2 o'clock. About 2.30, I get a call on the radio. It's my 8th grade assistant principal, and he said, uh, can you come to room 116? I said, I have few people on our campus. Do we have a problem? He said, we do. I said, what is it? Very few people on our campus had radios, but I thought, you know, I can ask, well, what's the problem? He said, well, it's a, it's a bit of a bat problem. A bat problem. As quick as zigzag lightning, my counselor picked up the radio. She had one, and she said, is that the Louisville slugger kind? <laughs> he said, no, it's the furry little creature with wings. I thought to myself, oh, dear Lord. So I go down and I look in the classroom. There are about 25 eighth graders in there with the English teacher. And uh, sure enough, there is a bat that has attached itself hanging upside down on the frame of the projector in the ceiling. And she begins to tell me her story. Evan Carit was an eighth grader in her class, first day in there. 
She's walking around as she looks at the kids' work that they're doing. She'd had them a little, little assignment that they were doing that, you know, related to the, the, the whole year. And so as she's looking around, Evan hands her a note. She reads the note. She gives it to me. And this is what it said. The first, the first sentence on the note, this is what it said. Don't freak out. <laughs> Not a good way to start a note, is it? And then it said, but there is a mouse on your projector. She looked at Evan and said, Evan, I don't know you that well. I don't, I don't know whether I believe you or not. He said, ma'am, I would not lie about something like this. So sure enough, she, she gets brave enough to turn around and she sees it's a bat. Our sister principal's son was actually in the room. And so he, he, he came and got uh, Mr. Husky and he called me. And so we're in there and, and they're looking at me. Mr. Husky's looking at me. I'm looking at him. And I said, what do we do? He said, I don't know. I've never seen a bat in a classroom. And of course, she's She's about crying because she said, it's going to fly around. It's going to bite somebody. I got 25 children. So she's panicking. And I said, just, just, just hold on a minute. And I look around at the kids. The kids are not, they're not bothered at all. And instinctively, I did something that I know now I should have never done before. I just looked at him and said, na 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 Batman. They had no clue what I was talking about, but I... I lighten the moment for them. And so I said, okay, let's just file out. And so I said, we got to go to another classroom. Went to a classroom that was empty. And so uh, we shut the door. Nobody in the room, just the bat. So I'm standing out there looking what to do, and my bookkeeper comes down. I had a, I had a custodian, by the way. He was six foot six, weighed 290 pounds. I couldn't even get him in the room. <laughs> he wasn't going in the room to save his life. But my bookkeeper comes down, and She's giggling a little bit, and she said, what you going to do? I said, well, I'm going to call somebody to come get this bat. <laughs> she said, well, you better make sure it's an approved vendor. <laughs> now, for those of you who don't know what that means, in the school business, if the district has not approved the vendor, the principal pays for that service out of his own pocket. All she could think about was, you, you're about to be out some money. You better make sure it's an approved vendor. I finally get a guy on the, on the line, and he, he, he comes, and he goes and so he reaches into me that it, it's daylight, kid. Bats don't fly around the day most of the time. And so he reaches up there with a glove on, gets it. This thing had about 12 inches of wings wrapped around it. And he looks and he said, yeah, this is the kind that colonizes. Hmm. So I'm thinking to himself, he's going to take that thing and he's going to dispose of it. And all. He walks outside the building and throws it up in the air. If I'd have known he was going to do that, I'm like, why did you do But he, he said, well, we're going to turn it back to its natural habitat. I said, this is coming right back. He said, we'll figure it out. That is one of those situations that I was in that was unprecedented in my life, and I saw people panic, and there was fear in their eyes, and they wondered what in the world are we going to do, and how are we going to get through this? Eventually, ultimately, it worked itself out, but we had to take it one step at a time. One little step at a time trying to figure out, okay, if we do this, we don't do that. How does this work? In the life of Moses should happen. The male child was born into the family. They knew what the king had said should happen to male children, but they were not willing to do that, and they had to pray and figure out how they were going to respond. One step at a time. One day at a time. Three months, they hide him. At the end of the three months, they could hide him no longer. His parents said, we got to do something. 
And I believe that God planted the idea in their minds of the wicker basket. The wicker basket, by the way, coming from the reeds of the Nile from which papyrus would grow and the parchments were made that would eventually write on. How symbolic that Moses, the author of the first five books of the Bible, would be placed in a wicker basket with pitch and tar. And they knew exactly what they were going to do with Moses by putting him in the basket. I think she probably put some stones in there that weighed about the same amount as her baby. And she said, I need to test it out. I want to make sure that it's not what she's told to do. I want it to sink. And, and, and you notice here how the sister is brought into the picture and what she's told to do. She's to follow it along. And I think they knew that Pharaoh's daughter would be bathing at this place in the Nile River. And they knew that Miriam was going to come and offer the services of an Egyptian or of an Israelite mother. And so as she's doing that, look, look at what happens here. I think they probably, they probably put it in there with the stones, let it float down and said, Now Miriam, tell me how you're going to go speak to Pharaoh's daughter. She's going to say, well, I'll go tell you, I'll get a, I'll get a mom to come or I'll get my mom. No, no, no. And so she would... She would Tell her to phrase it just right and use the right tone, not be monotone, not, not be overly dramatic. It needed to come naturally and so forth. But what's happening here is, is that God's plan is playing out in the life of this family. Some of you are saying, what in the world? My prayer is that every single day that we live, that we will live with a that sense of awareness that we're part of God's plan. That he has a plan not just for a nation, not just for a family, but for every single individual, for every one of you and, and even of me. And the question is, not just are we aware of the plan, but are we accepting of the plan? Or are we willing to do what he wants us to do? Even when it seems so strange and foreign, put a wicker basket in the mouth, put the baby in the wicker basket, give him over to the Pharaoh's daughter? What in the world? <laughs> you see, if I'd have been there and somebody had asked me, how are we going to respond to what Pharaoh said? I'd say, build an army. Put battering rams in their hands and swords and shields and helmets and all that they'll need and let's fight against him. I'd have said intellect. We need to outsmart him. We need to outstrategize him. We need to figure out a way to overpower him but we don't have to work hard. We just have to work smart. Figure out a way to do that. How does God respond? A baby. A baby. Some of you are sitting here this morning and I say this lovingly. I say it respectfully. You've lived a good while. And you say, oh, this is a sermon for the children. This is a sermon for students. This is for those who are young at heart. And they have their life ahead of them. And they need to know that God has a plan. Moses is 80 years old when he comes to the burning bush. Some of us this morning as 80 year old may discover that God finally reveals his plan. Oh no, you're not off the hook. As long as you have life in your body, there is an opportunity for you to be open and accepting to God's plan for your life. When you're 92 that you look back and realize that's what God was doing.
We're going to see him go out into the desert. He's going to live in the desert for 40 years. At 40 years old, it's going to be 80 before the burning bush. And you say, why did he live in Egypt for 40 years? Why did he live in the desert for 40 years? Because God needed him well educated and well experienced in both climates and in both situations. And God just has a way of taking all the cumulative experiences of a person's life and bringing them to focus at some point out there in the future and says, this is why I was doing that all along. Sometimes we don't make the right decisions when the storms hit us. Sometimes we mess up. Sometimes we slip up. Sometimes we make mistakes. But the challenge for you and me is to learn middle of those mistakes and the challenge for you and me this morning is to put down a couple of anchors in our lives and say I'll never waver from these lives never waver from these two truths God's never caught off guard God's always in control that defines the providence of God Father, I pray that you would take this message and apply it to any life and every life here. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal Jesus as our Redeemer and our Liberator. For any person here this morning, Lord, who would come to understand how Jesus fulfills every need in our lives and they've never publicly acknowledged him as Lord and Savior, I pray you'd give them the courage and the freedom to do that today. Father, should there be Christians here who are looking for a church home? Because your spirit would lead them, let them come to unite with our church family. Pray this in Jesus' name.